On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like the path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and on today's podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with the author of Riding the Lightning, A Year in the Life of a New York City Paramedic, Paramedic Lieutenant Anthony Almogera. Anthony has 20 years of service in New York City, and he has a great story to tell us. So, Anthony, I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me on uh, Stories from the Road with Phil. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy for everybody to be listening. It's a, it's truly a privilege that people actually want to hear a story from me, let alone listen to my voice for 20 to 25 minutes. So th- that being said, my name is Anthony Almagera. I am a, currently a FDNY lieutenant paramedic. I work out of EMS Station 40 in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, New York. I have been with the department going on 19 years, and I've been working New York City EMS 20 and a half years now. It's uh, It's been a crazy journey becoming an EMT and a paramedic and moving up the ranks in the fire department. It's a job that I never thought I'd be doing as a kid. And uh, I, I think I'll start there by saying how I got into the job. Uh, I was uh, in school to become an actor. I was studying theater and I was a cook part-time. And these EMTs used to come to the restaurant I worked in. This was in 2001. And uh I would listen to them. They'd come in pretty early and I'd listen to their stories about the calls they were going on and what they were seeing and the homes and the people. And I'd start to ask some questions to them and they came in every morning for breakfast. And then uh, I thought to myself, that'd be a good job for an actor. You know, you're going into homes, you're dealing with emotions, you're dealing with people, you're seeing different scenarios. 
I can pull from that and use it in theater or movies or whatever it is I was going to get into. And so I asked one of them, how do you become an EMT? And he told me about it. And the guy that told me about it, his name was Bill Simon. I'll circle back to him later. And uh, he said it was in Flushing Volunteer Ambulance, the class. I went over to Flushing every day, studied to become an EMT, became an EMT. And here I am 20 minutes, uh, 20 years later, acting like I know what I'm doing. So I guess I'm still an actor. But uh, <laughs> when I first got into it, I was doing medical transport for Richmond County Ambulance. And it, I liked it. I liked dealing with the people. Uh, I, I think I'm a people person. But it wasn't what I thought it would be, you know, bringing in dialysis patients. And I would listen to their stories, and I loved listening to them. You know, you get some real quality time when you do these long transports. It just wasn't hitting what I thought it would hit, and I was going to give it up. And in November 2003, the fire department sent me the letter. I couldn't get hired by any of the hospitals in New York City for 911. So the fire department called and said, oh, I'll give it a try. And in uh, February 2004, I was hired. I came out in the streets. I worked Harlem Station 13 in April 2004, and I was like a fish in water. That was it. I was hooked. 11 Frank, two minutes out. I worked with some real old timers up there, Cy Collins, Norm Gillard, Greg Hodge, people that I mentioned in the book. I was very fortunate to work with these people who – Wanted a job since the 70s and really showed me, hey, this is a good job and you could do a lot of good with people and you could have some fun while doing it. And uh, I was spoiled because I thought all of EMS was like that. But I would go on the jobs with the paramedics like Steve Marino, who was a Vietnam veteran. And he'd say, Anthony, come in the back of the truck. And I'd go and jump in the back and he'd sit there and show me how to do an IV. Or when they're intubating somebody, hey, Anthony, this is what you're looking for. And I said, oh, I could, I could be a medic. So I went to medic school in August of 2004. You know, I wasn't on the job long. I'd been in EMT about two years. And uh, I went to paramedic school. I got through paramedic school. I went to uh, Methodist, paid for it. So I was doing doubles and then jumping on a truck uptown Presbyterian for rotations and then coming back into the work and going back into school. And uh, I, it was one of the most stressful experiences, but... October 2005, I started working as a medic for the fire department. I got upgraded, and, man, I loved it. I loved it. I got hired by fire off the open competitive list in 2007. I turned it down because I love being a paramedic. There's nothing, there's no drug, crack, heroin, you name it, that's ever going to equate to when somebody's not breathing, and by the time you're done with them, they're talking to you. In its essence, that's what we do, right? The magic of paramedicine is when you're almost dead. And I take you back from that edge. And I sit there and I look at you and, you you know, you get this, you can see this sense of genuine joy that the person is still alive. Whether they did something good or bad or the, whoever they are as people, I don't know. There's nothing like that. And I've, I've been in love with the job ever since through all its trials and tribulations. I'd be remiss to not mention, like when I mentioned, I said, I'll suck it back to Bill Simon, because when I became a medic and I was working at Station 38 in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, one of my first partners on the truck was Bill Simon. Talk about life full circle. The guy who was telling me in the restaurant, become it. Here I am working with a guy who graduated at a Medic Basic 2, started the job in 1971. 
one of the nicest men on the planet, really showed me the ropes. So I was very fortunate in my career to have uh, what, unfortunately, a lot of EMS people don't have nowadays. I had a steady hand. I had experience showing me what to do. Uh, and I started to see the job really erode around 2007, 2008, 2009, where people really just would just the old timers were starting to leave and people were coming on as a stepping stone to go to PD, fire, sanitation. Uh, I saw nationwide how the job had just this churn, this incredible churn, and nobody was investing in it. So that led me into trying to get involved in another way. In 2006, I became a union delegate, and I was delegated for the EMTs and paramedics units, local 2507. And then from there, you know, I tried to get involved and, and help and, and push agendas. And, and I was in the papers saying the chief of EMS is, is terrible and there's a vote of no confidence. And I had deferred becoming a lieutenant for a few times. And I said, you know what, somebody's got to go on that side and try and help, you know, in the middle rank. The middle rank is the, is the fulcrum. Somebody's got to buffer it a little. So I jump into that. I get involved with the union again, this time local 3621. I start making my way up through that, and I run for vice president in 2017, and I win. So I've been pushing an agenda with the president, Vincent Variali, who, between the two of us, we really just try and get EMS in the forefront. We've made some big leaps in the last five years. Uh, we got more to do, but we're almost there. We're almost at the promised land. But while doing all this, responding to calls, you know, delivering babies and subway stations and holding up the kid like the Lion King for all to see. And the mother saying, what are you doing? And I said, Mom, he's never going to get another entrance like this. And dealing with the regulars, who all your listeners who aren't EMS, uh, we're like uh, Cheers. Sometimes, remember the TV show Cheers? Sometimes uh, people call and everybody knows their name. And so, we, <laughs> yeah, so people call and we go, oh, that's. In the book, I talk about people like Classic Tile and a few others that we give them names or they we know their names, we know their whole histories. Come on, let's go. And, you know, we sit there and we they become like a dysfunctional family a little. And that dysfunctional family is what led me into thinking about writing a story. I come from a house as a little personal background. I was born and raised in Brooklyn. I come from a house that has a a lot of uh, characters in it. It was, it was pretty traumatic in some ways. And there was some joys, obviously. I had a brother that was shot and killed when I was 16. He was into drugs and robbing people. I had three, uh, three cousins and an aunt die of AIDS. Uh, my parents were divorced. My mother was in the closet lesbian. Uh, that all came out after the divorce. Uh, there was people in jail and all this other stuff. And I started thinking... You know, I had to get out and I left my house when I was 19 going on 20. And when I got into this job, all of a sudden I was working with people who had such similar backgrounds. You know, you grow up that way. You think you're the only one that has that, right? You think everything else is like on TV, you know, two parents and a white picket fence. But I started working with people like my best friend, Mike, his brother died tragically. My friend, Pete, his brother died tragically. My sister Angie, who I call her my sister, she's not sister by blood, but her brother died tragically. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's something going on here. And so I started talking to my partners in the ambulance, just getting to know them. And if people aren't familiar with ambulance, it's about 
three feet by three feet. It's very intimate. If your partner didn't shower that day, you're going to know. If they ate a lot of garlic, you're going to know. And if they are going through something, you're going to know. And I sat there and listened to them. I'd ask them questions about where they're from and how they got on the job. And I started noticing the similar thread. There were so many of us who come from divorced households who have these traumatic backgrounds. And it's the classic comic book story. If you look at a comic book, the villain and the hero have similar backgrounds. But one takes a divergent to the left and they become the villain. And one becomes Batman. One, you know, you have this thing where those situations were subconsciously training you to be very good in stressful situations. And I didn't realize it that when I would go to a call or a shooting, let's say a shooting. And I remember this one shooting up in Harlem where this guy was shot three times and he had uh, the cauliflower coming out of his abdomen because it was perforated and He's sitting there and there's people running through 126th Street in Lenox. And I just, I never forget it. My blood pressure dropped. My heart rate slowed down. It was a physical sensation to me. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I'm why am I so focused and calm in this situation? Look at how crazy this is. And I didn't, in, in hindsight, through a therapeutic process and writing and speaking to people, it's because of what I grew up in. You know, there was, a lot of that is influenced by that. And I noticed the people that I was working with were influenced by that. I once once spoke to an academy class. There were 60 EMT students, and I asked them how many come from a divorced household or is there drugs and alcohol in the immediate family? And there were 58 of them that said yes. That's not a coincidence. So I started getting these stories, and I thought it would be interesting to write a story that would connect our lives and the calls we go on and somehow tie it into this overall thing called EMS. But what I didn't have was a driver. I didn't have something to make the page turn. The pandemic gave that to us. The pandemic allowed me to write a story where we can float my personal story into the book with the stories of the people that I work with and the patients that I take care of into this thing that because we thought we grew up in this situation and we work in this situation, we can handle anything. Yeah, no problem. Ebola, got it. SARS, got it. 9-11, yeah, it sucked, got it. You know, we thought we could roll with anything. And we were, we were ignoring the warning signs, not only in the city, ignoring EMS, which is a warning sign, but our personal lives. And for your listeners, maybe they don't know this, but I think it's good information, is that EMS nationally has the highest suicide rates per capita amongst 911 providers. We have the highest substance abuse rates amongst 911 providers. We have the second highest rates of divorce amongst 911 providers. All those things we grow up in and all those things we see on the job, that energy has to come out somehow. And unfortunately, because of a lack of investment in mental health care for EMS, not only in New York City, but nationwide, a lack of investment in, in in monetary care, paying EMS workers so they don't have to work three jobs. Uh, it's It all came to a head during the pandemic. The first responder listeners will know, but for the other listeners, if you, if you, if you work a truck, maybe you get two or three cardiac arrests a week in a busy area, you know, during a heat wave, the nursing home. 
during the pandemic, March 2020, April 2020, we were doing 10 or 12 a day. My busiest day was 13 cardiac arrests in 16 hours. The crews were coming back. You know, their, their heads were spinning. They'd never seen anything like that. And all those, all that shucking and jiving all those years came to a head. And unfortunately, since March of 2020, we've had eight EMS members, FDNY EMS members commit suicide. We've lost about 10 or 11 people to COVID active members. I have numerous more who are not coming back because of COVID. They're long haulers. They can't work. The other thing was a mass exodus. Since March of 2020, the fire department has hired or promoted about 1,200 people. We're only a workforce of about 4,000. So a quarter of the workforce has been replaced already. And people are just leaving in droves now. What really should be a beautiful, nurturing uh, job, it should be the only job you have to do, turned into a nightmare for a lot of people and people have had enough. So what you see reflected now and and people may hear about the nurses quitting and people leaving the profession and EMS, it's double that. And it's a real crisis at the moment. So what I wanted to do with the book was make sure I write a story, my personal story. It is a memoir. Um, you're going to know a lot about me. I wanted to tie in the stories, the heroic acts we do. Uh, some of the stories in there are, you know, are crazy and a lot of fun. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I talk about delivering the baby on the subway. I talk about uh, going to shootings and not telling the cops about the kilo of cocaine the patient told me about so I could keep his confidence so he doesn't get angry at me and I can continue to treat him. Uh, I talk about instances of, of saving somebody or putting on someone's wig so they can go to the hospital or helping somebody with their makeup. I mean, it sounds silly that a medical professional would do something like that, but you really have to get in with a patient because the biggest thing about EMS is when you take somebody to the hospital, you're on their grounds. It's a white wall, white coats. They have control. EMS, I come into your home. You're in control. You called me, yes, but I have to navigate the family members the patient who doesn't want to go and I have to somehow convince them to not only leave the house, but get downstairs, get them into the ambulance and then let me treat them. So sometimes that means I have to wait for you to put on your makeup or I have to figure out how to put on this wig or I have to sit here and get somebody to help me clear out the hallway because there's 17,000 pieces of furniture and boxes in there. So it really is a beautiful job. It's very unique. And what I wanted to do with this with, with the book was timestamp what we went through. And that's why it's a year in the life of. People see an ambulance flying down the street. They never give it a second thought about the people behind it. And it's such a luxury in the United States to know that if I call 911, I'm going to get somebody to come. And during the pandemic, guess what? People call 911, we didn't come. That luxury was, you know, people realized the importance because not only were people dying of COVID, but people were still having heart attacks and strokes and Everything else getting hit by cars and ambulances weren't available. And the shame of it, they were banging the pots and pans and they were looking, you know, at us as heroes. And during our darkest time in New York City and the rest of this country, the only lights that you saw lighting up and providing any hope were the ambulance lights. And it seems like they forgot already. You, you see it nationwide. You see, you know, ambulances are, are breaking down. I was reading the story 
Honolulu, the ambulances are blowing up. I was reading a story about New Orleans, how the crews, they don't have anybody. People work at triple shifts. New York City, you know, we, we, we run down trucks daily. Uh, and when you talk to people about pay parity and what it takes to really fix a service, they just look at you like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. And that's a frustrating thing. And if I was the union guy asking for a trip to Fiji as a sign-on bonus, I could see the city going, these people are nuts. I'm just asking for the same exact benefits and pay that my brothers and sisters in fire and PD get. The other two options of 911. For your listeners that may not know, in New York City, PD, fire, sanitation, and corrections are considered uniform services as well as we are. But that's where it stops. All those other agencies get unlimited sick. EMS workers get 12 sick days a year. The people who take care of sick people only get 12 sick days a year. Those other agencies, if they die in the line of duty, their families get their pay and benefits for life. EMS workers, the family gets a check for three years of salary. And since I'm paid $35,000 less than those other agencies, it's not a lot of money. I'm not even equal in death. The frustrating thing is, if, like I said before, if I was asking for all the crazy things, then I can understand it. But I can't understand this one. It's about equality. You know, we gave and we had we die, you know, just like everybody else. And we may not die in a blaze of glory like a firefighter or a shot in, a, in a, the OK Corral like a cop. But when we die, we die quietly, right? HIPAA doesn't let you know about the members who contracted HIV on the job and died or other diseases or even COVID. If you notice, I, we haven't really gone public with that because families don't want people to know. And I can't push that. I can tell you a number, but I can't give you the faces and names. Well, I can try I give you some names and some faces if I get approval. And I was lucky in the book, I talk about one of my first partners in Harlem, Greg Hodge, who died of COVID while working. And you couldn't ask for a nicer man. He was super smart. He had, he had a a degree in engineering. He was an airline pilot for Delta. He was a respiratory therapist, but he still chose to be an EMT on a truck in Harlem. And when I asked him why, he said, this is my neighborhood. I'm getting, I get to give back. I get to have these kids look at me, somebody who lives in a neighborhood with them as a role model. And he said, Anthony, from 110th Street to 155th Street is mine. These are my people. And I'll show you how to deal with them. For a Filipino-Irish kid in Brooklyn, Harlem was a, a bit jarring, you know, and he did. He took me under the wing and he showed me how to navigate cultural differences and, 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 and physical differences and everything else in between. And that man deserves to be celebrated. And unfortunately, his family got three years pay. So, and that was it. So, you know, with the book and the other things uh, I, I mentioned, I wanted to timestamp, I wanted to honor people, and I wanted to tell the story of VMS and only and also my story. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing that chunk of information. Uh, one of the things we like to do in this podcast is tell a story or two about a call or a job that we ran, and I wonder if you can pull a good old New York City job out of your back pocket and share it with the listeners. Yeah, definitely. Um so, you know, the, the crazy thing is when you do this for 20 years, as you know, 
it's kind of hard to because they kind of all blend. But definitely, there's definitely one. I'll tell you one. I was early in my career, and I was working up in Harlem, and 16 Victor called for an 85. Now, to your listeners, an 85 means a crew needs assistance, that they're in trouble somehow. So I was sitting at the station, which was on 136th and Lenox. They were on 145th and Lenox. So I said, 11 Frank, put me on their back. And I started running down lights and sirens on Lenox. But as I get to about 141st Street, I see 16 Victor driving towards me with their lights, no sirens, going about five miles an hour. And this was in the middle of January. No, yeah, January. So I, it's cold. I'm driving. I turn off my sirens. I'm thinking, oh, maybe they're okay. They got out of here, whatever. And as I'm driving by them slowly, I see the medic in the front, Steve Marino, the guy who was showing me some of the ropes. He says, Anthony, just turn around, turn around. Meet me at Harlem Hospital. So I'm like, I, I'm shrugging my shoulders. I go, what are you talking about? And behind him is a six foot five male, naked as the day he was born, chasing them. And he's yelling, I'm going to kill you, MFers. I'm going to kill you, MFers. And he, I'm sitting there like, what? I, I, I hit the brake. I was just, what the hell's going on? And so what happened is, they came across a patient. It came over as an unconscious, and the crew turned. It turned out that the guy was on angel dust. Started fighting with them. They get into the truck. They realize he's chasing them. They figured they'll let him just run to Harlem Hospital and they'll get him into the hospital. And that's what we did. I stood behind the guy so no cars would hit him. He's chasing sixteen Victor. We pull into ER Bay. There's a whole bunch of people waiting, and it took like ten people to wrestle this guy down. Naked. I mean, I felt bad for the guy who was kneeling at his knee trying to get him down because something kept hitting him in the face. Your listeners can uh, <laughs> can use their imagination at what that was. Thank God the cell phones weren't big then because that would have been everywhere. But, that you know, to be new on this job and to come across jobs like that, like, wow. And uh, there's another call out. And this one's this one. I write about this one in the book. But I'll tell it because it really it stays with me to this day. I go to a call in Brooklyn on Schenectady and Linden Boulevard. And it's at a church and it's a shooting. And I was over at Kings County Hospital. I get there in like three minutes. And uh, there's a guy on the floor. There's a woman there with her kid. And we get the guy in the back of the ambulance. What happened is the guy... The, the woman, his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend came to the church after the service, got into a fight somehow, was jealous, started shooting up the place and shot the, the, the boyfriend. And so we get, him on the, we get him on the longboard. We get him in the back of the truck. He's shot twice, one in the stomach, one in the chest. He's bleeding out. I can't get a blood pressure. I start, I start the two IVs on him. We're rolling to the hospital. My partner's driving. And... For people that don't know, when you're sitting in an ambulance, the patient is, um, if I'm sitting on the bench, the stretcher is in front of me, and the patient's left hand is in front of me. And all of a sudden, I see his left hand come up, and he says, can you hold my hand? I hold his hand. I go, what's up? You know, he says, am I going to die? 
as a, as medical professionals, not just EMS people, but we try and always kind of give you hope. No, hold on. We're doing everything we can. We're almost at the hospital, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z. But he wanted the truth, and you could see it. And I, and I don't know what it was in me that felt it, and I just looked at him and I said, yes. Now, some may seem to think that's irresponsible, but I think the man wanted to say something. That's what I was getting at. And he said, I said, yeah, what do you need me to do? And he looked at me and he said, tell my mom I'm sorry and to tell her that I love my daughter very much. And we were just rolling into Kings County ER and I held his hand and my partner opens up the door. She goes, Anthony, what happened? I said, he just coded. I was so in shock at that moment, so to speak. And shock may not be the right word, but I, I, saw, I forgot to do CPR. And she goes, do CPR. I was like, oh, yeah. So we get him in the hospital. That was around 7.30 at night. I put myself off service. I had enough. I, I couldn't do any more calls that evening. So I went out sick, if I remember. And I waited until that hospital got in touch with the mom. The mom didn't show up until about 12.31 in the morning. And I went over to the mother and I said, hi, you know, your son had a message for you. I was the medic in the back of the truck. She, you could, she's devastated. And I, I gave her the message. I said, he told me to tell you that he loves you very much and that he's sorry. And to tell his daughter the same. And the mother just collapsed in my arms and we held each other for uh, five minutes, it felt like. And she thanked me and gave me a kiss on the cheek and walked out. A job like this where you have such a very emotional and physical and psychological tolls it takes on you deserves all the respect and love and adoration from the public. And it deserves all it deserves for people to want to do this job and stay in this job. And if I can help it with the book, my union advocacy, everything else that the, 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 my, my team members are doing in the, in, in the union. If we can get to the promised land, then maybe one day what you see is when the kids are on the streets, they play cops and robbers. They play, you know, they imagine themselves as a firefighter and maybe someday we'll see them playing paramedic. And that's what we want. We want people to sit there and go, that's a job I want to do when I get older. Look at the amazing things they do and make it a career. That's very well said, Anthony. I want to thank you for taking a little bit of time and sharing your history, sharing about the book, the work that you do. Uh, We're going to put a link on the show notes so that anybody that wants to purchase your book can find it easily. And uh, man, I just, I'm really appreciative that you were able to come on the podcast and, and just share that, that, that last story just got me. So thank you for everything you do and, and everything that you're doing for the men and women that work around you. No, thank you, Phil. Thank you to your audience for listening. If you get the book, you know, the audio or um, the, the hardcover, it's, I hope you guys enjoy it. It really is a, a, a tale of, of, of triumph. It's hopeful at the end. So I, I wish everybody well. Stay well. Be nice to the EMS workers. Help us get where we got to go. And, and thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. 
If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.